The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 212 of The Real Food Real, we hear from our very own Ellie McLean. In this conversation, Ellie dives into how to optimize a vegan and vegetarian diet for performance. Ellie shares her personal experience with a plant-based diet and highlights the importance of adopting a personalized approach to both nutrition and training rather than following the latest trends. Ellie also dives into the links between gut health, nutrition, training, injury, and so much more. Whether you're an avid meat eater or a vegan looking for direction, there is something in this episode for everyone. There's no denying the benefits of adding more plant-based foods to our plate. Ellie, welcome to Sparta Chicks Radio. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a few months now. Well, we've been talking for months. We have, we have been talking about months for four months, first about Steph and then about me, and now it's your turn. <laughs> yeah, we've come full circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have. Yep, yep. And I still remember the first time very vividly that I heard your episode. Um, it was the interview that you did with Siri Lindley, actually. Oh, It really wow. stuck in my mind. Mm, yeah, yeah. Siri is extraordinary. She is amazing. It was a good interview. Oh, thank you. Um, mm. So I wanted to get you on the show for a few reasons. Firstly, to share your story around running and nutrition and how those threads have combined in your life. And secondly, something we haven't discussed at all, like I'm not even sure the word has been mentioned in 76 episodes so far, and that word is vegan. Um, but I want to, yeah, I don't think the word has even been used. Okay, so new content for people. Some of our guests no doubt would be vegan, but we've not actually discussed it off the top of my head. So I wanted to explore in particular how, you know, your exploration of adopting a a vegan protocol has made you really passionate about making sure vegan and vegetarian athletes and the rest of us um, have the information and most importantly, the nutrition they need. Yeah, for sure. So do you want me to start with that rather than delving into my running and that side Ooh, of things? No, let's no, let's start with you first. Let's start with you yeah. first. I guess they they all intertwine. I was going to ask, what came first? The interest in nutrition or the interest in running? Um I would say the interest in nutrition first and foremostly. So I was like one of those kids at high school who would watch an AFL match or like sit at home on the weekend watching the Ironman, just absolutely in awe of these athletes and what they could do with their bodies. And um, then it just started to, to get me thinking about like how much more they could do, how much better they would be if they thought about what they put in their body 
Wow. That was legitimately where my thought process went, you know, when people were looking at Trevor Hendy thinking, oh, my God, look at him, he's so cute. I was, I was thinking about... <laughs> I was thinking about what he was eating and whether Nutrigrain was the right thing for him. <laughs> oh, um, you were destined to be. I was destined, yeah. I always wanted to work with athletes and, and really just help them to get the most out of their bodies. So, um, yeah, I had a passion very early on and I went to study at university, exercise science and nutrition. Um, and I always enjoyed physical activity, but I was like, honestly, not very coordinated and didn't have very good ball skills or anything like that. So I took up running cause I could do it, you know, I could just <laughs> put on a pair of trainers, go out, hit the road and run. And I really, really enjoyed running. I found it really cathartic, um, and freeing as well. Interesting. So when did you start running? Early 20s, I started okay. running yep. um, and started with half marathons and um, for a very long time I was daunted by the thought of marathons. But um, like eventually, you know, I'm talking sort of six or seven years down the track, I started training for my first marathon um, and really fell in love with the sport. Which race was that? So my first full marathon was the Melbourne Marathon in 2015. Oh, nice. Mm, And how many have you done since? So I've done four in total. Oh, wow. And I won't stop doing them until I I achieve my personal goal, which is to do one in less than 329. Ooh, I like that goal. Yeah, it's literally because that's my dad's PB and I can't wait to tell him <laughs> that I've beat his, his marathon time. <laughs> Not that I have a competitive bone in my body at all. Not competitive <laughs> in the slightest. No, no. What do you love about marathons in particular? I think it's that mental challenge associated with planning and approaching the run because you, have, you, know, you, have, you know, have to know how you're going to run a marathon. You know, you have to have a bit of a plan in place as to how you want to tackle it. And so I love um, I love that. I also love the training. I love the dedication that's, like, required to be prepared for a marathon. Um, and then I love just seeing what your body is capable of, you know, mm-hmm. seeing, seeing how you can – seeing how you can push it yeah. and seeing the improvement that you're capable of making yeah. um, when training over a period of time. Yeah, I think we've all been in that situation where you set a goal and sometimes you don't actually believe that you're capable of said goal. Yeah. Um, and then you get there and then you look back and you you realise that you did actually do it and you could do it. And what's next? Absolutely. And that's why I think something like running a marathon or training for any event is so, so wonderful and translates into you know, real life, because when you set your mind to, to doing something, you know, running a marathon, for example, or running a 10K for the first time, when you set your mind to doing that and you achieve it, it's such a great confidence builder. It really does help you to prove to yourself that you, you can set a goal and you can work towards it and then you can achieve it. Mm, that's really true. Mm. But there is a huge place for, you know, for co- for coaches like yourself um, and I've previously worked with Katie actually at Holistic Endurance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge place for you guys because I think you also help to set um, and it's like what I do with my, my athletes as well is actually helping to like get them out of themselves or getting them out of like sort of the detail or the nitty-gritty of their plan and reminding them that they have actually done everything that's required to prepare for said event, for yeah. example, yep. providing that that reassurance. Like when I'm working with my athletes on their nutrition plan, it's such a such a big confidence builder because they know, okay, well, um, it's not as though I'm going into this this race day, this event, having not trialed any of these strategies. You know, it's been trialed, it's been proven, and so you can really be confident there's not going to be too many variables that to affect you on race day. Mm, that's really true. So from a nutrition perspective, I know you adopt an LCHF protocol, so lower carbs, healthy fat, that's it. as opposed to low carbs, high fat, which is what I had it in my head as initially. But what mm. stage in your life did you adopt that and what changes did you notice when you did? Mm. You know, I, when I when I studied at university, it was very much the um, 
you know, the healthy eating pyramid, that foundation of cereal and grain-based foods and processed foods were considered, you know, okay. Um, and so that sort of didn't sit overly comfortably with me for a number of years because I experienced personally so many so many challenges myself. So, um, it, you know, you name it, I've experienced it. So I had gut health challenges. Um, I had appetite control issues. So cravings galore, craving, uh, you know, confectionery, processed foods. Um, I also had hormonal challenges. So, you know, uh, you know, amenorrhea for a very, very long time, um, acne or periods of acne. So, you know, that traditional approach to diet wasn't working for me. So, you know, it wasn't long after being at university that I played around with, you know, various ways of eating, um, but it probably wasn't until about three years ago where I sort of categorically made the shift towards a lower carbohydrate, higher fat protocol. Mm. And in terms of noticing those changes, like for me, it was, for me, there was progression required and there were other things that I had to uncover, which is one of the reasons why I love what I do working one-on-one with people is, is actually trying to identify what those barriers are because if LCHF isn't working straight away, then chances are there is something else getting in the way, you know, something more sinister, whether Mm. it be, um, uh, you know, autoimmune conditions or gut health challenges or nutrient deficiencies that are standing in the way. Um, so for me, my like my improvements and noticing that change was somewhat gradual. But you know, the appetite control is almost immediate. <laughs> you almost <laughs> notice that immediately. Yep. Um, and I know you've, you know, I know you've been dabbling in your own LCHF journey recently, so you can probably um, you can probably vouch for that. Definitely. It's actually going back to what you were saying about um, that you started dabbling and questioning early after university. I find that really interesting because often we come out of university believing that what we've been taught at university is the law. Well, uh, you know, Mm. it's the established norms. It's what everyone does. Yet you had the foresight and the insight and the intuition and the awareness to go to question what you had been taught. Yeah, or if, you know, um, perhaps then naively it was more just around how I felt, you know. Um, You know, we got taught uh, about traditional carbohydrate loading strategies, for example, and for me, running long distances with food in my stomach was just the last thing that I wanted to do. It did not make me feel good. Um, So that's just one example of how I realised it wasn't for me. Or, you know, eating... um, eating breads and, and cereals, I, I would feel that, you know. I remember very vividly one day just like being in tears because of my gut, just mm. feeling so uncomfortable and it was as a result of, of processed foods. Yeah. And so when did you start to explore or adopt a, a vegan protocol? Yeah, so um, – for many, many years, I worked in the corporate health space. Um, so before starting to work, work one-on-one with individuals, I was working sort of more broadly in corporate health. Um, that took me to the US. When I was working in the US, that's when I started to really just be curious by industry because the industry is so big there and so obvious Um you know, you, you can tell that people are just sort of under this spell of the food and beverage industry mm. when you're in America. Yeah, that's really true. And and then that got me interested in the meat in meat production. I think I'd actually met with met with a company that they were like hog farmers, and I just was Ugh. totally totally turned off by that. Um, and then exploring things like the poultry industry and the beef industry, um, I couldn't see how it made sense to eat products that had to be fed with hormones in order to grow at a rate that would allow that in that industry or that company to be profitable or products that had to be fed antibiotics for that animal to be considered free of disease to to live long enough before being slaughtered or to be considered free of disease to make them safe for human consumption yeah um so that was one side of it you know I, i I didn't want to expose my body to those unnecessary chemicals, mm-hmm. um, which is which is what they are. And 
and then I, and then the environmental side of things yeah. as well. You know, I don't know if you've heard this stat, but if but the the amount of carbon emissions generated by the um, the meat and livestock industry, if you put all of that together, it is greater than the emissions produced by the travel industry. Whoa. <laughs> So, you know, I don't think the answer is for everybody in this world to be vegan or to be vegetarian, but I do think we need to be more conscious of how our decisions translate to um, environmental sustainability and to what this planet is going to look like for our children and our children's children. Mm. So that's part of the reason why it's something that I'm so passionate about because, you know, 90% of the US's calorie intake, and I unfortunately don't know the stat for Australia, but it wouldn't be too far behind, 90% of their calorie intake comes from either processed food or animal protein products. So imagine if we started to shift that, you know, um, what impact that would have not only on the health of our world, but also the people within our world, but also the health of our environment, the health yeah. of the planet. That's massive. Mm, Even a five to ten percent shift would make an incredible difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's really complex. Like, you know, you can't just say the answer is for everybody to go vegan because there is the reality of like, well, how sustainable is it to make animal protein? Sorry, to make plant-based protein and to make that the sole source of protein for mm. people. So you, you do have to consider that, um, which is why I like my my personal opinion is that you know. A world of vegans is not the answer, but there has to be about ba- there has to be a balance. Yes. There's got to be there's got to be a different way. There's got to be less reliance on processed foods and uh, foods derived from animal protein. Mm. Mm. Now, I should have declared up front at the start of this: I am not vegan or vegetarian. So, I, oh, uh, look, <laughs> um, I, and, well, you and know I that. Just... But for the sake of our listeners. Yeah, and I also want to make that that known to the audience as well. Like I, I'm personally um, don't put myself in a category of being vegan or being vegetarian. Um, I like to think of myself as being plant based. Which for anybody ah, out there who's okay. listening who is vegan or vegetarian, um, don't but don't balk at me. Don't judge me. Um, because I do consider my diet to be primarily plant-based, but I do include animal products strategically to support my requirements. But that's because you, just tying the two threads together, that's because you you came to believe and understand that a purely vegan protocol wasn't conducive for you to thrive with training and racing for marathons. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Precisely. So, you know, I found myself in in a bit of a hole. Um, it, it was about three years ago now, actually. I was training for my first marathon. Um, I was incredibly stressed both by work and by personal circumstances. And I was just not healthy, like literally to the point where my hair was falling out and I hadn't had a period in months or even years probably. Um and so that's when I that's when I really started to delve more deeply into an LCHF approach. Um, but it's also when I did more testing, more testing to understand what was going on with me. Yeah. So um, looking at my gut, understanding what bacteria was and wasn't living in my gut, understanding what pathogens were potentially living in my gut, um, and also delving more deeply into my like my nutrient status Mm -hmm. so it was at that point where I decided that I didn't want to become reliant on supplements so I made a shift in my diet um, to include more in the way of animal proteins and products to get me out of that hole right yeah and you know that's that's one of the things that I really try and bring to the surface when working with my clients is that you ultimately have to be, be in this for yourself to some degree you know we do have to think about the environment we do have to consider um, the animals that we consume and the way they're raised but you also have to keep yourself in mind and you have to consider what's best for you so some people can truly thrive on a vegan or a vegetarian protocol for a number of years but some people don't and some people just, you know, they're not willing to wave that little white flag and say, okay, it's mm. time for me to include some eggs or to include some bone broth. Um, and 
and that's that's why I like to work alongside people one on one to help them understand like when is when is it the right time to consider a different approach to their diet. And when they get to that point, what are the things that they might want to include in their diet to help them to help them help them progress as much as possible? That's such a great point because you might philosophically want to or choose to adopt a vegan protocol, but if you're not if you personally are not thriving, your health isn't thriving, adopting that protocol then there's a big question mark there about what, what you prioritise, your philosophy or your personal health. Yes, precisely, precisely. And, um, you know, some people may listen to this and think, well, that's not right, we should be prioritising the environment and we should be prioritising the animals. But I do think, first and foremostly, we, we need to take care of ourselves, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean doing it to the detriment of the environment and animals, mm. you know, the there is a way of of eating animal proteins and and doing it more mindfully or doing mm. with more consideration yeah a little bit more of that balance going back to what we were talking about earlier yeah so there's balance in terms of how much reliance we can we can place on animal proteins you know there's, there's certainly other great sources of um of protein and nutrients um but then also looking at the types of animal proteins that we choose to consume so you know if you do want to if you do want to include them in your diet then looking at organic grass-fed produce where possible mm-hmm. um looking at you know cage-free eggs where happy possible. happy eggs as we call them here that's <laughs> what you call them yeah, yeah. Or just happy animals. Happy animals, yeah. Happy animals. Um, that's another thing to consider. Like I don't know if you know much about the, the way that animals are traditionally slaughtered, but even just that slaughtering process changes the hormones that are filtering through their body, which changes the, the quality of the meat that we then consume. Yeah. Um, so, you know, thinking about the way that animals are fed, raised and slaughtered and choosing to to buy a, pro- a product that does it the right way will make a difference to the quality of your health <laughs> and the environment and the animals. So we're recording this episode at 12 midday and I've just decided I need to reconsider what I'm having for lunch because I don't know if I can eat what I was planning to after this conversation. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know if that means mission accomplished or if I feel really guilty for that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'll go and... Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go and see what's in the fridge. <laughs> Look, if fairness was the goal, then I guess that's been achieved. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so diving into a, a vegan protocol uh, a little more, would you go so far as to say that there are nutritional benefits to being or adopting a vegan protocol, benefits that perhaps vegetarians or even carnivores like me interesting question an interesting way of framing it because i think it it plays into that i guess more traditional approach to diets in that this diet is good this diet is bad Mm. or this food is good and this food is bad that's not the way i choose to look at it like any food that is whole and real we call it jerf, so just eating real food. Um, any food that is whole and real serves a purpose in your diet, yep. whether it comes from a plant, from an animal, um, it serves a purpose. And so then when you think about like, well, veganism, is there nutritional purpose or value to it? Yes, if it's done right, absolutely. You know, um, if, if you're if you're consuming a plant-based diet and you're consuming more in the way of non-starchy vegetables um, than the average individual, then of course there's going to be nutritional benefit. But one of the, one of the things that I see all too often is is people um, making this switch to a plant-based diet, but but not doing it in the right way. So not necessarily packing their diet full of beautiful leafy fruits and vegetables, but packing their diet with processed cereal and grain-based foods. So they take out the animal-based product and just replace it with extra starch. What do you call them? Starchitarians? Starchitarian is the label that um, <laughs> that got given to them by one of my old lecturers. Yeah. Um, 
Yes. Yep. Exactly. So to come back, yeah, there's absolutely the possibility for a um, a vegan diet to be incredibly healthful and and for those individuals to to benefit from eating way more in the way of um, plant-based foods. You know, I recommend any of my clients, regardless of what sort of protocol they decide to go to um, or to to follow, to have about six cups of non-starchy vegetables per day. So a vegan who's doing that, yet they're going to be ahead of the rest. But but a vegan who is choosing to simply substitute um, animal proteins for more in the way of processed cereal and grain-based Based products or mock meat products, which are also incredibly processed and and um, you know full of full of additives and fillers. No, they're not necessarily going to be ahead of the rest. And in mm. actual fact, what I see in clinic is that they're behind. Yeah. So there are so many uh, nutrient dense foods that come from animals. Traditionally, dairy, red meat, fish. So. Mm. Can and how does a vegan athlete make up for these foods on a vegan protocol? Yeah, so some of those foods that you've just mentioned, like dairy and red meat and and fish, they are incredibly nutrient dense. Um, and you know we're talking about things like B twelve and iron and zinc and omega three fatty acids, um, as well as a really bioavailable source of amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. So they're some of the the key considerations when looking at a vegan protocol and whether it's hitting the mark because we've got to make sure that with those beautiful bioavailable sources of things like B12 and iron and zinc, um, we're we're not avoiding those or missing out on consuming them in a vegan protocol. Right. But you can absolutely do it. There are a few considerations. One is that I think if you're going to follow a vegan protocol, you have to be quite dedicated. You know, you have to be conscious of what you're putting in your mouth. Um, You have to be willing to prepare food, to try different foods, to have a variety of foods. Uh, and if you're up for that, then you can you can still meet the requirements for those things that I mentioned before. So things like iron, um, things like zinc, um, things like your protein requirements. But if if you do make that that switch that I said before and, and you go towards more starchitarian, then you are going to run the risk of becoming deficient in some of those things. Mm-hmm. With regards to B12, uh, which is really crucial for um, particularly neurological function um, as well as metabolism, um, there is the reality that you you run the risk of becoming deficient in that on a vegan protocol. B12 can be stored in the body for for many years, so you might not necessarily notice the effects early on um, in your choice, but certainly down the track, um, you may start to notice those signs of B12 deficiency. So B12 is a supplement that if you are on a plant-based protocol, I I would work with a professional to determine what B12 supplement is right for you and and look to getting on one almost as soon as possible Mm -hmm. um, because you just can't obtain it from a plant-based diet. Right. Then there are omega-3 fatty acids. So these are really crucial, particularly for athletes because they're such that they um they have such beautiful anti-inflammatory properties. So for athletes, you know, omega-3s are great for helping with exercise recovery and avoiding injury, for example. We can get um, omega-3 fatty acids on a plant-based diet, but the sorts that we obtain um, just aren't as bioavailable as those that we can get from things like uh, oily fish or eggs, for example. So omega-3s are another thing that I do often recommend supplementing with if on a strict vegan protocol. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at an EPA, DHA supplement. Right. And are there any other key considerations that vegans should keep in mind or, you know, when it comes to, air quotes, doing veganism well, um, what about testing and gut health and that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, one of those those first key considerations which I just mentioned is is 
is being willing to pay attention to your diet. So first of all, if you're going to make the the choice to be vegan or vegetarian, then also make the choice to be conscious of what you put in your mouth and to spend time preparing food um, or making good food choices. Uh, the other thing that I would highly recommend is is testing. We always say test, don't guess. And if you don't know what your what your blood markers are doing, if you don't know what your levels of vitamin D and what your levels of iron and zinc um, and B12 are like, then definitely get those tested. You know, you can go to your GP and just request those tests. Um, I would recommend working with a functional health professional though, so they can actually. Um, I guess, look at signs of deficiency rather than overt um, deficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is you know, when you get your blood test results, there's often there a little indicator of like the acceptable range or the normal range, I should say. Yep. Um, and in my opinion, you, you don't want to just be in that normal range. You want to be optimal. So therefore, working with a functional health professional can help you to determine whether you are in that optimal optimal zone and optimal range that's really key for athletes to be aware of because when you're putting your body under you know honestly more stress than the average individual you want your markers um to be at that optimal place that optimal range gut health i imagine too super important for everyone not just those who adopt a vegan protocol yeah, so gut health was going to be that third um, consideration that I recommend. So, of course, gut health is, is is crucial for everybody. You know, as Hippocrates says, all disease begins in the gut and therefore, in my opinion, all good health begins in the gut as well. Mm. So it's a really important consideration. But even more so for anybody who's adopting a vegan or vegetarian protocol um, because you know, a good gastrointestinal system is responsible for doing three things. One is to form a barrier of defense between us and the outside world. Two is to support optimal digestion of the food that we consume. And three is to maximize the absorption of the nutrients within that food. So if, if we're on a vegan or vegetarian protocol, we're already a little bit behind the eight ball and we need, really need to make sure that we're maximising the absorption of the nutrients in the food that we consume. Um, Is that because you're consuming food that's not quite as nutrient-dense as other forms? Um, it, not necessarily because it isn't as nutrient-dense but because it's not necessarily as bioavailable. So like I mentioned before, with those omega-3s, we can get ALA, which is um, which is an omega-3, from things like flax seeds and flaxseed oil, but it, it then needs to go through this conversion process to, to, to EPA and DHA, which is the form that we really require. So therefore, you really want to maximise the absorption of the, the ALAs. Okay. Um, when it comes to iron, you really want to make sure that you are breaking down the food that you're consuming effectively and maximizing the absorption of that iron Got so it. that you're you know you're getting every little bit out of your your green leafy vegetables for instance or your dulse flakes which are another plant-based source of iron um, and similarly for protein you know um, protein is made up of amino acids and we, we can get we've got also what we call essential amino acids. So there are amino acids that we must get from our diet. If you're eating um, animal sources of protein, then you're going to get all of those essential amino acids in your your red meat, for example. Right. But on a, on a plant-based diet, there aren't as many options when it comes to what we call a complete source of protein. Therefore, you really want to be maximizing the absorption of the amino acids that you get from your various sources of protein. So at the end of the day, you can hit that amino acid requirement. That makes sense. Mm. So just going back to the testing for a moment, that's mm. sort of the, the testing and the key markers, is that something you would recommend for everyone, vegan, vegetarian, and the carnivores of the world as well? Yeah, my preference is um, absolutely to look at those key markers. So, yeah, regardless of what sort of dietary protocol you decide to follow, if, if you're working with me, then I'll always <laughs> ask always ask you if you can go and get um, go and get some blood testing done. Um, and you know, 
the reason for that is because I'm working with a lot of athletes, whether they're vegan, vegetarian or carnivores, um, our goal is often around metabolic efficiency and helping that individual to become, you know, what we call fat adapted. Um, you know, one of the, the main changes that you can make to become fat adapted is to reduce your intake of carbohydrates, you know, essentially so you can create this beautiful fat burning environment internally. But there are things that are going to get in the way of fat burning um, and that's going to be things like poor nutrient status so things like low vitamin d low iron that that has the potential to get away get in the way of fat burning so you know in my opinion if someone comes in to work with me i straight away want to identify what potentially could set us back here mm. and what's the best way of us um, overcoming that you know, are we at a point where we can do it with real food, which is always my preference, or are we at the point where we have to look at um, supplements? That's a great point because I think so often we just think, oh, we just need to change our diet and we'll be good to go. But there, uh, there may be actually other issues, roadblocks, deficiencies mm, yeah. that that yeah. are that are either going to make that process longer, slower, less efficient, um, or just basically stand in your way and and no matter what changes you make you're not going to see the outcome that you want yes yeah so going back to my story a little bit um but the testing that I conducted was a little bit more comprehensive than than just simply bloods because I did the blood testing but didn't notice improvements straight away so I actually went in and did some comprehensive comprehensive gut health testing um, which where possible we also try and do with as many of our athletes here at the natural nutritionist um, because there are also things there that can be standing in the way of yeah. your pro- your progression and your fat adaptation journey. So talking about things like dysbiosis, which for those of you that haven't heard that word before, it's essentially an imbalance of the bacteria that live in our gut. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also things like parasites and pathogens that could be living there in your gut, which um, you know could be contributing to things like inflammation, which for the athletes out there may be manifesting as poor recovery from exercise and training, uh, persistent niggling injuries, low energy levels, poor nutrient status. So gut health testing is something that we also do a lot of um, alongside bloods. Mm. I have to say I'd never really put the connection together, stupidly I guess, between inflammation, like you hear this term inflammation, and ongoing like niggles and mm. you know inability to recover from sessions or feeling really like you know a hard session takes you three days to recover from I hadn't made the the connection between the two yeah I mean there's absolutely that connection because as you know the there's always going to be that level of exercise induced inflammation right yes you know you do a tough session you push the weights you run further you go harder there's going to be a level of inflammation that your body then has to go in and mop up and take care of that's all well and good in a very healthy individual but if your body is dealing with inflammation elsewhere, and that may be inflammation that's induced by a parasite or a bacterial overgrowth or um, some sort of intolerance, then that exercise-induced inflammation is sort of going to be like the straw that broke the camel's back and your mm. body's going to have these competing priorities. So that's one reason for why the, the niggly injuries can can start to present um, when gut health is is compromised. Interesting. Now, you mentioned fat adaptation before. Can a vegan athlete become fat adapted? Yes, they can. Um, they can. They can become fat adapted because you just have to be able to apply the principles of an LCHF protocol and training protocol um, to to sort of what fits within a vegan template and go with that. Um, you know, it does take a little bit more consideration and commitment and awareness of of what you choose to put in your mouth, but it can definitely can definitely happen. So. For those for those listeners, you know, hopefully you've had a chance um, to hear, you know, both Katie and Steph speak on, on previous episodes of yours to understand a little bit more about fat adaptation and what that is. But essentially, it's this metabolic reorchestration where um, you can become better adapted to burning fat as a fuel source rather than sugar. 
um, with the benefits being on, on race day, for example, less chance of gastrointestinal upset, less chance of that, you know, that dreaded nutritional bonk. Mm. The wall, the wall. <laughs> yeah, hitting the wall. Um, but on a day-to-day standpoint, you know, being fat adapted or being able to tap into fat as that fuel source leads to reduction in inflammation, greater appetite control, reduction in cravings, hormone balance in the end. That there's lots and lots of benefits to that fat adaptation from a day-to-day perspective. And and how we get there is is really by number one, moderating our carbohydrate intake um, and that's moderating so it's mm. not saying no carbohydrates but moderating our carbohydrate intake because what that does is that moderates our insulin levels and insulin is like our fat storage hormone and insulin increases when we eat carbohydrate. So by reducing carbohydrates, we reduce that circulating insulin which means we open up this beautiful fat burning environment internally. Well, I just had this picture of all those starchitarians with their uh, fat-burning pathways, like the gates are up. <laughs> completely being blocked, yeah, completely being blocked, yeah. So um, when we say reduce carbohydrate intake, typically um, on an LCHF protocol, it'll be around about 20, like macronutrient-wise, it'll be about 20% carbohydrates, 20% of energy intake will be from protein, and about 60% of energy intake will be from fats. Now, obviously, that is going to differ depending on the individual and their goals and where they're at in their journey. Um, on a vegan protocol, though, I typically I expect to see that percentage of energy intake from carbohydrate to be just a little bit higher. So maybe you know between twenty and twenty five percent carbohydrate, twenty percent protein, and fifty to fifty five percent fats. Yeah. Um, the reason there's going to be that little bit of discrepancy is because you know some of the protein sources that we look to on a plant based protocol they are naturally higher in carbohydrates. So mm. I'm talking about things like lentils and legumes, so like your chickpeas and um, and your lentils. They, they are naturally higher in carbohydrate than other protein sources, whether they're plant-based or not. So there's going to be slightly higher um, intake of carbohydrates. Yeah. But to become fat adapted on a vegan protocol, um, you know, it's not – just about looking at how much carbohydrate you consume, there are other strategies that you can use to help you get closer to that fat adapted state. And so when I'm working with vegans in particular, it's just about becoming really, really aware of these other strategies that you can utilize to help you get closer to that that fat adapted state. So are there certain foods that vegans should prioritize? There, There are, yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk about, I'm going to actually take you through a bit of a build your plate protocol. Go for it. Which will be, will be applicable to, you know, both your, your, your meat eaters out there and, and also to your vegetarians and your vegans, but I'll just highlight a few differences. Sure. Um, the first thing you want to make sure that you've got access to at every meal is non-starchy vegetables, okay? So these are things like your broccoli, your kale, your cauliflower, your Brussels sprouts. Um, these are beautiful um, fiber-rich vegetables which are going to not only add bulk to your meal but also add bulk to your stool to help food moving through you nice and quickly. Um, and the goal should be around about two cups of those vegetables per meal. You then need to make sure that there is protein at every meal, and this is where the um, there's just got to be extra choices that are being or extra options put forward to people on a vegan or vegetarian protocol. Sure. So that source of protein for somebody that eats animal protein would be, you know, a piece of meat, a piece of chicken, a piece of fish, always around about a fist-sized piece, or it could be eggs. Um, if you're looking for plant-based options, then it would be tofu or tempeh. My preference is always tempeh over tofu, and if you're not aware, aware of what that is, it's essentially a fermented soybean product. Um, I love it because it is slightly higher in um, iron, iron and protein than a traditional tofu. Oh, interesting. But always go for a non-genetically modified and organic um, organic option when it comes to soy-based products. Other 
plant-based sources of protein, you're of course going to get some protein from the likes of vegetables and, and nuts and seeds, um, but you'll also get it from hemp. That's a great um, protein source and option. So there's hemp seeds and there's also hemp protein powder now um, and pea protein powder. So they're great inclusions on a plant-based protocol. Um, and then your lentils and legumes, like I just mentioned. So um, these are things, yeah, like our lentils and our chickpeas and our beans. Um, they do contain protein in them, but like I said, they also come with some added carbohydrates. So if you're if you're looking to take on like if you're looking to become fat adapted, then these sources of protein are best consumed in the post training window, when we also require more in the way of carbohydrate. Mm, okay. And then your fats, you know, you're, nev- <laughs> you're never going to thrive on in any protocol, um, vegan or, um, or carnivorous, uh, without having good quality fats in the diet. And this is another mistake that I see some, some vegans making is that they, they do go really low fat um, and then they start to wonder why, you know, there's issues with their hormones or brain function and things, things like that because we need good quality fats in our diet to support hormone production, to support brain function, to support to support energy production, to support, you know, cellular level integrity. Um, so we need to have good quality fats in our diet. Um, and there's plenty of these available on a plant-based protocol. You know, we can eat avocados, coconut products, coconut oil, nuts and seeds, and also their butters. So things like tahini or almond butter or peanut butter, and then other oils. So things like olive oil, avocado oil, um, hemp seed oil, flaxseed oil, you know, there's lots of oils to have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, you, if you are somebody that's eating um, animal proteins, then things like butter and ghee and animal fat um, are also going to fall part of in that, in that sort of fat, fat category. Mm. I think it's safe to say that fat category, category is the one that um, – most people struggle to get their head around because as I talked with Steph about it, you know, for all our lives effectively we've been taught that, I know all my life I've been taught that fat is bad. Absolutely. For so long we've had the fear of God instilled in us, you know, if we eat fats we're going to get fat or if we eat, <laughs> if we eat cholesterol um, it's going to see our cholesterol levels skyrocket. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, there is – such a dramatic rise in in risk for things like metabolic disease, so type two diabetes, overweight and obesity, cardiovascular disease. Um, you know that is testament to the fact that you know low fat isn't necessarily the way. Yeah, what what we're doing at the moment is not working. Yes, exactly. Something's something has got to change. Um, so it, it's just that yeah, being open to including these good quality fats in our diet. Um, you know, some people may just need their own personal experience to prove themselves right or to prove, yeah, to prove themselves, prove themselves wrong, maybe. Um, (laughs) you know, if, if you are, um, having issues with things like blood sugar control, weight, then try going on a, on an LCHF template for a short period of time and see how you feel. Even get your bloods done before you start and have a look at um, how some of your key markers shift. So things like your triglyceride levels, your fasting blood glucose levels, see how they change as a result of transitioning to um, an LCHF protocol. And mm. yeah, you'll be pretty pretty pleasantly surprised but there is a key point to make and that is that you can't go lchf and not have fat (laughs) otherwise you're gonna starve to death (laughs) yeah you are going to wind up in a hole you will feel terrible and and then you know potentially you'll blame it on the lchf um when in reality it's not that you know so if you're if you're removing the bulk of carbohydrates from your diet and not adding the way in good quality fats, then you are going to be starving your body of some of our key energy macronutrients. And then you run the risk of, of tapping into something like protein for energy, which is really what we want to avoid, especially in the athlete space. Because it's a building block rather yes. than a, it's a building block rather than a fuel source. Yeah, precisely. So yeah, you can sort of categorize um, protein as that macronutrient, which is there to support, you know, 
tissue development and and, ma- and maintenance, um, and then and then fats and carbohydrates really as being an energy source. So we want to we want to utilize either one of those. Um, but if you're thinking about the principles of fat adaptation and also the benefits of fat fat adaptation, then you want fat to be a primary fuel source. Yeah, yeah, I've. I've been oh, – well, we might do another episode on my um, – I would love to do another episode <laughs> on my journey. My experience <laughs> uh, diving into the LCHF world because it has really been – it's been fascinating and it's been a real mind mm. – I won't put an explicit rating on this episode because we don't really need it, but you can imagine <laughs> what I'm about to say. <laughs> well, we could talk about that later. <laughs> we got that. I think, I think we all heard that. <laughs> Um, got the memo yeah we got that message yeah you know I should come on and interview you perhaps and ask you about your experience in the last week and a bit yeah let's let's do that um so from a broader a broader question um regardless of protocol that you adopt vegan vegetarian carnivorous or otherwise are there what are the some of the issues that you see time and time again in athletes that you work with well, we, you know, I work a lot with individuals who are already somewhere along the line to, to hearing about the benefits of fat adaptation. They've perhaps dabbled around a little bit with LCHF. Um, so one of the, I guess, the key mistakes and struggle, struggles that I see people making is that they, um, they're going too low carbohydrates. So like I said before, um, this is not about having no carbohydrates. LCHF stands for lower carbohydrate healthy fats. And a lot of athletes, you know, they're sort of that type A personality where they sort of assume, well, if low carbohydrate is good, then no carbohydrate must be better. Mm. Um, and that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see. You know, we when training, um, we absolutely need carbohydrates, you know, especially after those high intensity sessions where um, stored muscle glycogen is going to be the predominant fuel source for that session. Um, you need to be recovering afterwards adequately with a meal that contains complex carbohydrates. So, you know, that's carbohydrate from the likes of fruits or starchy vegetables like potatoes, sweet potato, beetroot, um, or some of our grains and pseudo grains. Look, ideally gluten-free, it doesn't have to be, but ideally from something like a rice or a quinoa or a buckwheat. So probably one of those, yeah, there's those biggest challenges that I'm presented with in clinic is um, is people who've already started to hear about LCHF. They've tried it, but they're just not quite doing it right. And do those people are they seeing other are they recognizing other issues or potential impacts like mood, mm. health, you know, gut issues, bloating, um, falling asleep at the desk at three o'clock in the afternoon, and attributing it to the fact they trained that morning rather than what they ate for lunch, for example. Yeah, yeah. I think people are really open to hearing about that, though. You know, um, it's almost like this weight is lifted off people's shoulders when, <laughs> you know, when they come in and talk to you and they, they finally understand, like, oh, okay, like, is that why I'm, you know, running for the coffee or running for the chocolate bar mid-afternoon? Or yeah. um, is that why I need a nap on the weekends? So, you know, talking through somebody's diet with them and helping to un- helping them to understand where they could be going wrong i think like yeah that's almost a weight lifted off people's shoulders some of the other one of the other things that i often see um athletes struggling with is is just even getting the basics right um you know, often people think that there, you know, there's a there's a quick fix, there's a pill, there's a supplement um, that is going to help them. Um, but if they're not sleeping enough, if they're not drinking enough water, so if they're not even meeting that minimum requirement of two litres of water per day, if they're not, you know, taking a day off from training once a week, mm. um, if they're not doing some lower intensity sessions um, as part of their training protocol, then they, they're going to struggle to to um, notice immediate improvements in how they feel with mm. dietary changes if those foundational things aren't being taken care of. Yeah. Mm. It's almost those 1% items that by themselves they don't seem much. Like we all know we should be drinking more water, but it's not until you actually do it 
that you realize, oh, shit, I actually feel better for doing that. Yeah, precisely. And I'm and I'm sure, you know, you probably have the same conversation with your athletes around their um, warm-up, their yeah. cool-down protocols, um, their mobility exercises, <laughs> their stretches. You know, I'm sure you have the conversation. Foam rolling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that's the stuff that well, it's not as cool or sexy, but it needs to be taken care of in order for the athlete to thrive. And it's the same when it comes to diet and lifestyle. You've got to take care of those foundations like sleep and hydration and rest and recovery um, if you really want to see yourself or if you really want to see output being optimized by your diet. I think for me too, the diet has awareness of the diet has highlighted the other things too. Like I know for myself, if I'm training, I naturally eat better. And if I'm looking after my diet, then I am thinking about sleep. I am thinking about water. So it's almost like all these separate, they seem like separate and standalone things. But when you actually put yourself in the mindset of, of awareness and um, almost dedication to one, not necessarily mm. one, I think particularly nutrition, it starts to filter out into other aspects of your life where I know a lot of people who are fully dedicated to their training but haven't thought twice about whether their nutrition is actually working for them or not. What they're eating. Yeah, yeah on right. a daily basis. Like we, we're focused on, you know, what we what we eat and drink during training sessions or during a race, but we haven't necessarily paid attention to the rest of the week. What we eat in and around it. Yeah, yeah you're so right. Um, and what I really like to do is identify which one of those foundations needs to be addressed in order to make the rest all follow on really nice and easily for the individual. So what I mean by that is if you're sleeping better, for example, then it's going to be much, much easier to to front up the next day and make better food choices because you're going to have much better appetite control. You're going to have actual energy to draw on rather than relying on these quick fixes like caffeine and sugary and processed foods. So, you know, that little shift in potentially your eating, sorry, your, your bedtime routine can then have a profound impact on what you eat the next day and yeah, so on. That's so true. Think of all those late nights you had it as a uni student, or well, mm. maybe not you because you were studying nutrition, but <laughs> as a lawyer I could say, you know, those late nights, you like you just if someone did a Macca's run for breakfast the next morning. Yeah, and you fool yourself into thinking that, well, the late night is is a good thing, you know, if you've got that sort of type, and, type A sort of mentality, um, harder, faster, then, you know, you think that that good night, that, that late night, that all-nighter, well, that's just me being tough and getting the job done, whereas in actual fact, no, you'd be a far more productive individual, a far happier individual, um, far less likely to be experiencing, you know, hangries or cravings if you just went to bed yeah. <laughs> a little bit earlier. So one final question, if there is one thing you would recommend to all athletes, every person listening to this podcast, what would it be? Oh, can it be two things? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> One would be to drink more water. Okay. Minimum two litres per day. And the other one would be to eat more vegetables. It's so unfun. <laughs> <laughs> It's so not it's cool. It's not very but sexy, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but eat more vegetables, um, ideally six cups per day. Six cups, I have to say, I'm finding easier than I thought I would. Well, that's good to hear. I often, um, you know, often people say, oh, yeah, I eat my vegetables, you know. I'm ticking that box. Yeah. But then when they go away and they actually proactively are adding those two cups to every meal, they always come back to me and say, oh, my God, like I was eating vegetables but just not enough of them. Yeah, because you just think about the big plate of vegetables you have at dinner but never mind the fact that you just had toast for breakfast or porridge yes. or something. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, look, don't get me wrong, I, I don't get those six cups in every single day and I don't expect my clients to get those six cups in every single day, but it should be the goal and it should be achievable on, on more days than not. Yeah. So, Ellie, where can everyone find you online, find out about uh, what you do and how to get in contact with you at the Nat Natural Nutritionist? 
Yeah, so I'm a consultant at The Natural Nutritionist, so people can come to our little online home, which is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au, and people can read up more about what fat adaptation and what LCHF is there on our website, and they can also learn about me as well as the different programs that we offer. There's also some awesome recipes that they can tap into. There's lots of awesome recipes. I will vouch for the recipes I've tried so far. Yeah, they're pretty much foolproof as well. So anybody, <laughs> anybody can give them a go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we're based in Sandringham in Melbourne. and We do face-to-face consultations here. But look, I consult with people around the world. I would say about 75% of my, my clients and our clients in general are Skype or FaceTime based. So do consultations that way. Um, and if people just want to ask me a few questions or get to know me a little bit more before diving into a program or an appointment, then they can request for a 15-minute complimentary consultation. And that can be done on our website. Um, I'm also on Instagram, so you can go and check me out at Nutritionally on Instagram. I will link to all of those places in the show notes. Plus, I will also link uh, Katie Pettuccini gave me a resource to find a functional health professional. Beautiful. Um, so I will add that to the show notes as well. Ellie, thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for having me. And we'll get you back on in a few weeks or a few months and uh, you can turn the tables on me again. Yeah, for the debrief. It'll be great. <laughs> Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Jen. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.